What up, this is your boy DJ EFN. You might know me as a drink champ, but first and foremost, I'm a proud father. I linked up with two of my other dad homies, Manny Digital and KGB, to start the Fatherhoods podcast. Each week, we bring you insider hip-hop stories, parenting, and advice and therapy. The saying is true, it takes a village, and we humorously serve as each other's trusted counsel in figuring out how not to screw up being a good dad. The Fatherhood Podcast. Beats, rhymes, and diapers. This episode of the Fatherhood's Podcast is brought to you by Fly Dad, where fatherhood stays fly. Check us out at flydadgear.com. Yo, what up, Fatherhood's fam? Yo, today we got special guest. He comes all the way from Detroit. Actually, I don't know if he's currently situated in Detroit, but he's from Detroit. Um, he is an author. He is an activist. He's a college lecturer. He's, of course, a dad. And he was once incarcerated. Um, and he's got an awesome story to share. Uh, so I'll, I'll open it up to our friend and guest, Mr. Shaka Senor. Hey, how's it going, man? Excited nice. to be here. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate oh, you, man. Thanks so much for having me, man. And yeah, I'm definitely from Detroit. I, I live in L.A., though. I've been in L.A. now about six years. So uh, but Detroit is where my heart will always be at for sure. Yeah. So uh, just to make sure your last name is pronounced Senor. Senor, Senor. Yeah, yeah. Senor. Yeah, okay. Because yeah, I'm looking yeah. at I'm like, yo, his name is Shaka <laughs> Mister in Spanish. <laughs> 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 All right, cool. Yeah. So, so I mean, look, let's, why don't we start with, you know, I, I kind of alluded to this before we, we kicked off, but you, you were incarcerated. I think it was 19 years you did, right? Yeah, yeah. 19 years from 1991 wow. to 2010. Man. Mm. Yeah. So you you had a child before you went in, it sounds like. And there was a moment in your incarceration interacting with your son, I, f- I believe it was. Yeah. That kind of changed the course of your life. Absolutely. So I, I went to prison in 1991. You know, I grew up east side of Detroit um, in a household on the outside looking in. Look like, you know, the, 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 the model for black working class, middle class America. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, there were some complications in the household. I ended up running away when I was 14. At the time, I was on a roll scholarship student, dreams of being a doctor. Wow. And I basically got seduced into the tr- crack cocaine game, like right at the time when crack was first penetrating the Midwest. And, you know, none of us had any idea how devastating this drug would be. But I remained in that culture when I was 17 years old. I got shot multiple times. <laughs> and back then, I didn't even know what PTSD was. You know what I'm saying? I just knew... I had several friends who had been shot, some who had been killed. And, you know, I began to carry a gun every day, start telling myself this narrative that if I got into a conflict, I would shoot first. 16 months later, I shot tragically caused a man's death and was subsequently arrested, charged with open murder and sentenced to 17 to 40 years in prison for second degree murder. Mm. What ended up happening when I went inside prison, like I was bitter, I was angry, got into all type of trouble. Uh, had my security, you know, level increased to maximum. I was the youngest kid. I was literally a kid in maximum security prison. And, you know, I ended up meeting some incredible mentors. But to take you into how my son's life impacted, you know, how I began to think about life, about eight years into my incarceration, I caught another case. Got into a conflict with an officer that led to me being sentenced to indefinite time in solitary confinement, Oof. which turned out to be four and a half years straight. 
um, in an additional two years. And while I was in that environment, I remember writing my dad this letter and I just said, dad, you know, they, they told me I'll never get out of prison, that I'm going to die in here. Um, and just to give context, my oldest son, Jay, who's now uh, 30, he was born like six months after I was arrested. Mm. And so my dad was raising him along with his mom and my dad would sit him down and, and, and write letters. And so my son writes me this letter uh, about two years in the solitary at this point. And he says to me, my mom told me why you're in prison for murder. And he said, dad, Jesus, capitals, right? Like he yeah, put murder capitals. in caps. Yeah. Murder in capitals. And he said, you know, um, you know, Jesus, watch what you do, dad. Like, don't kill again, you know? And it was the first time that, like, all the hood toughness, all the street savvy, all the prison yard, you know, boss reality, like, it just shattered all that because I realized that as a dad, I had failed my son. And I had left that responsibility on my dad, who was well into the space in his life where most of, you know, my my siblings were adults. Um, And now he was taking on this responsibility of raising my son And basically what I did is I asked myself this question, like, you know, how did I go from this kid with all this promising dreams of being a doctor to serving out my most promising years in solitary? And that was really based on reading like philosophy, reading Socrates, uh, apology. And so I said, you know, I got to figure this out. So I started journaling. Uh, It's one of the practices that I have to this day, I think has been my secret sauce in terms of success. But I started journaling and what I discovered is that I had never accomplished anything positive in my life other than at that time, other than like a GED. And so I was like, you know, if I if I'm going to be committed to being an example for my son and giving him the father he deserved, I got to figure this thing out. And that's when I challenged myself to write a book in 30 days. Hmm. What? (laughs) Wait, hold on. You was like, yo, I haven't done anything substantial in my life to this date. My son is like, yo, I'm basically a failure in his eyes. I'm writing a book. In 30 days. In 30 days. Yeah. Did you feel like you had enough? I'm assuming you did, but like content to fill the pages of a book or you were kind of going as you, you know, figuring it out as you went. Yeah, I was I was really fortunate. You know, when I came to prison, man, I met these incredible mentors, these brothers who were serving life sentences. And even though I was like thugging it out on the yard and running the yard. Like these brothers just saw something in me. So it's like, I'm on the yard. I'm in the midst of everything. All the things just popping. But then I would go to the library and it was like going to the University of Wisdom. And I would debate with these older brothers. You know, these brothers would give me books to read. They started me off with like hood books, though, like Iceberg Slim, Pimp and Donald Goins. And then they eventually got me Malcolm. And like Malcolm, like blew my mind. It was like, like damn, how does brother go from being a hood cat to being an intellectual? And so I would get all these books and I read really fast. So I would go back over there and they, would, they wouldn't think I had read the books and they were so sharp. They'd be like, OK, well, in this chapter, what is he talking about? And so we got into all these debates. And so when I started writing, it was really being inspired by so many books I had read at that time that had, you know, really helped me think about life different, um, helped me really understand myself, understand what I had went through. And I was like, if I can write in a way that inspires the next young brother to make better decisions then this is going to be my proven point. And the reason I made it is like 30 days, uh, actually it was 60 days, sorry about that, 60 days, was because I felt like if I didn't give myself a clear, you know, beginning to end, I would never finish it. You know, and that was the story of my life. I had started plenty of things, but hadn't finished anything. And so I wrote my first book 
ended up writing a second one and started a third one. And then I fell into a bout of depression because I realized I had this gift, but I was in an environment where I couldn't give birth to it. Yeah, it couldn't flourish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so so what I what I ended up doing is I sent a lot of them handwritten. So I would write the book out and then I would copy it with, you know, I would rewrite it. And I would send those books out, man, to publishers, to, you know, record labels. Because I, I seen, you know, how rappers was moving in the street. And I'm just like, yo, I got some hot stuff that's going to impact the streets and impact the culture. You know, put me on, you know. And I, I never heard from anybody because <laughs> I didn't know that you needed an agent and all that. But what I ended up doing was I bought a book on how to publish your own book. And so I ended up starting a publishing company while I was in prison and published my first book uh, from prison. And then I got sued out of prison um, for the cost of my incarceration. <laughs> Jeez, what? yo, time out. <laughs> that that could ha- that like yo, that's petty. Wow. That's petty gang right there. <laughs> so yeah, wait, bro. what ended yeah. up happening with that case? Yeah, so I so I ended up with with the case. I ended up getting sentenced to two two more years, and oh. I ended up serving for an. Oh, you talking about with the uh the the the, the lawsuit? Yeah, the lawsuit. Uh, so the lawsuit, I ended up. What they didn't realize, I worked in a law library, so I was a little bit smarter than they anticipated. So basically, what I did is I backdated a contract, signed a contract saying I would not accept any proceeds of the book until the company recouped this production cost, and then I would donate ninety percent of the proceeds to an organization of my choosing. So they went from being able to sue me for $15 a book to only being able to sue me uh, for $1.50 per book. And that was only contingent upon I making money while I was in prison. So I just shut the sales down until I got out. So they didn't get a dime. And we, mm. we went through the whole process. Um, but it felt good because I'm like, I know a little bit more about this law than they anticipated. <laughs> nice. That's pretty dope. I don't want to hog the mic, but I don't want to have any dead air either. So I'm going yeah. to give y'all a second. Otherwise, I'm going to have more questions for Shaka. Well, here's my here's something that I I mean it's not it's it's not and it shouldn't be an interesting thing, but I'm so used to kids that I'm around these days or young people that I'm around these days, and you know I'm I'm keying into you having aspirations as a, a as a younger man as wanting to be a doctor, and I and I find that a lot of young folks these days like their aspirations are it's entertainment it's you know some like we've got enough of that, right? But there's never a focus on man all these other things that 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 we need in the world, and it never seems like that gets focused on. How mentally? How how were you focused in that at that age? And did that have something to do with your dad or your parents kind of guiding you? Yeah, for me, my my desire, I I didn't realize this until some years later why I wanted to be a doctor, but it was really based on my relationship with my mom. And my mother had went through tons of trauma, and that showed up in how she parented us. But anytime we would go to the doctor, I would see this different side of my mom, where she was like super nice and just super kind. And, you know, it was an experience. And I'm like, subconsciously, I think I wanted to have that experience. I wanted to have that, that soft validation from my mom. And so that that inspired me. I was like a very precocious kid. I learned how to read when I was like four and was very curious about the world. When I would get in trouble, I would like read encyclopedias because mom made us run that TV. Um, so I know a lot of weird you know, facts that's just like the, the wildest thing. But it's great if you're watching Jeopardy. Um, <laughs> but, my, you know, that was the inspiration for me back then. And, you know, to your point about what's happening with young kids now with their aspirations, 
tend to be kind of, you know, rooted in entertainment and sports, et cetera. And none of those things are, are wrong interests. Um, I think it's just we haven't expanded their, you know, uh, um, insights to other worlds. You know, like I have a, I have a nine, I have a 10 year old son now and he's an entrepreneur, you know, but he's an entrepreneur because he has that exposure of parents that are saying, look, here's all these different things you can try. You can explore, you know, if you're interested in, in, in sports, then we'll support that. If you're interested in scientists, we'll back that, but we're going to expose you to as much as possible. And I, and, and really, I just try to encourage like more dads to think about the exposure specifically like our boys need um, because so many times we're just kind of limited to this idea. Like, like Biggie, you know, said like, you know, either the rap game or the crack game. And it's just so much more to life than that. You know, like I'm in the tech industry. I'm one of, I'm sure I'm probably the only person with my past that's a tech executive, you know, but that came out of, you know, me just being curious about life and seeing where can my skill sets take me and where can I add value at? All right. Let me ask you, um, when you had this, going back to, to the letter that you got from your son, right? Yeah. And, and, it, and it changed you. Did you attempt to parent more from, from the inside at that point? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in, in, in my latest book, I really write about how complex it is, my relationship with my older son. And it was based on this story I had told myself. You know, I'm doing my part as a dad. You know, my dad's bringing my son up to see me. You know, I'm making those phone calls. I'm writing those letters. And everything was very instructive, though. Everything was kind of mentor-oriented, like, don't do this so you don't end up here. And what I, what I realized is that, you know, as a dad growing up in the hood, growing up in prisons, oftentimes we're projecting our trauma onto our children. They have a whole different path for themselves. And so I was trying to guide him through my, my trauma lens, you know, through, you know, I'm seeing all these young brothers coming in. And obviously as a dad, I don't want him to go through that, but he's living this whole different life, you know? And so I doubled down on it, thought I was doing a great job. And then when I got home, it was real. And it really was my, the beginning of my deep understanding of what it means to be a father and what it means to show up fully and present uh, with no judgment, no ego attached. And oftentimes for dads, that's really hard for us to do. Yeah. Mm. What, what was that? So going back to, you know, when, when you, when you get home and you're diving into it, I guess, what were some of those things that you realized like, shit, this is, I guess this, this is how, this is how I got to approach it at this point. Not how, how I originally perceived it. Yeah, it's, it was a it was a real hard learning learning journey. You know, when I came home, I'm like, let's go. You know what I'm saying? I, like I had this vision for what I wanted to do, how I wanted to execute it. You know, I got out. I'm hustling books out of the trunk of the car. I had seen like all the rappers kind of take their mixtapes and parlay that into like full on business. So I really took that playbook. And that's how I approached my my reentry into society. Like first day I got out, the first thing I did was sold a book in the parking lot to a guy who was mm. getting out. And my son was there. And what I thought was going to happen was I was going to grab him up. He's young. You know, he got swagger. He's a handsome kid. And like, let's just go, you know, tear the streets up, get these books out, build this company and ride off into the sunset. And what I didn't realize is I was asking him to go on another journey that he didn't sign up for, you know, mm -hmm. and it culminated when me and him got into a heated argument, um, you know, and, and he basically threatened me and I was triggered. You know, mm. I was triggered like, you know, I'm from the streets. I'm from the prison yards. You know what I'm saying? I done been shot. I done shot people. I didn't, you know, been in the knife wars in, in prison. 
And so I'm triggered and I didn't realize that I had compounded PTSD from like being shot before being in this very violent environment. And so I called his mom and was like, yo, I'm going to take your son, put him in the trunk, take him over to the hood and leave him over there. And a day later, my brother-in-law, you know, he called me, he crying. He like, man, they just, you know, uh, they just killed Jay. They, they, my oldest son, they, they just killed Jay, put him in the trunk, took him to the neighborhood. And it was literally a play by play of what I said I was going to do. And it was devastating. You know, it was devastating to, to go through that journey of going to the police station, trying to go down to the coroner's office to identify his body. And what ended up happening was we went through that whole process. This is a whole day of us trying to figure out how to identify his body because they weren't giving us information. I have friends who worked in the homicide. They're like, yeah, we got a young man down here who fits the description. And I remember going to my dad's house and, you know, it was the longest walk of my life, you know, to, to go to the man who raised my son in my absence and, you know, for us to finally talk about, you know, the burial of, of my son, you know, oh. and soon as I'm walking into the door, his mom calls me and she was like, Jay, right here. It was the wrong Jay. It was another oh. guy named Jay. Wow. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. damn, so, man. There was another kid named Jay that ended up getting killed. Um, and it was actually right next to my mom's shop. So we really thought it was him. Everybody in the store thought it was him. And, you know, I ended up because I was just already in that space. You know, I raised a bunch of money for that family to help them bury uh, their son because we we was mostly invested. You know what I'm saying? Um, but what I learned from that moment was that, one, my role now as his dad is to just be present not try to take him on a journey, not try to force him to see life through my lens. You know, he has his own life and it really helped with how I parent now. Like I'm, I do what's called egoless parent. Like I try not to attach too much of my ego to anything related to raising my youngest son. And as a result, I've seen him just flourish, man. This kid is like a, a, a 10 year old, you know, genius, you know, and it's because he has this freedom and he's not burdened with this over ego driven approach to parenting, you know? So, um, there's a powerful lesson, man. And I write about that in a new book and really, you know, walk people through what I've learned, like as a dad, as a man, and just how to show up, you know, um, in the, in the world. Can you give us some examples of, of like what you did in that egoless parenting? Yeah. So, so my youngest son, you know, he, he, he is, he's definitely all energy, very creative, you know? And I remember one day, you know, I'm like, you know, I come from that that culture, like Detroit, you know, we like to dress fly. We like to have flat kicks and, and apparel. And, and I remember one day going to buy him like some, you know, fly little jogging pants and sneakers. And he's sitting next to me. And he just started drawing on them with a Sharpie, you know. <laughs> and like I had this moment like, like, bro, you know how much I just spent on these jogging pants? And then I stepped back and I was like, OK, is this is this really about him or is this really about me and people's perception? based on, you know, these material items that really at the end of the day don't mean anything to children. And it was like things like that where I just started learning, like, yo, you want to wear mismatched socks? If that makes you feel good, knock right. yourself off. You want to wear kicks that's, you know, dusty and beat up because they're comfortable, those are your favorite joints? Like, that has nothing to do with me, you know what I'm saying? And when it comes to sports and things like that, I just let him be a kid as opposed to being like, yo, you got to you gotta hit the crossover then to step back. You know, it's just like, you know, figure it out, have fun and make sure you are doing things that bring you joy. Mm -hmm. And so what I realized, like in that approach, like it's not my own stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, you can be a tough kid if that's what you want to be. 
But you don't want to, you don't have to be tough just because you're a boy. You can be smart and you can be cool and you can be, you know, nerdy. And like all those things are things I'm going to support and love you without my ego attached to it. I feel like you're talking to me right now. Like you gave the example of the mismatched socks. I took <laughs> issue with that when my daughter started turning in that direction. Yeah. Uh, you know, the basketball thing, I pushed it heavy on my daughter, you know, yeah. when she was starting to, you know, evolve and do things. And now it's it's such a it's such a challenge because we grew up with certain, I don't know, like beliefs were instilled in us or like things that were right or wrong or like what to really like. Like you remember like moments where your mom or dad might have been like, yo, like something traumatic or, you know, you got might have got screamed at like, yo, do your bed. And now you always do your bed. So if your kids don't do their bed, you look at them like they're crazy and you start wilding out. Whereas to your point, like. Does that shit even really matter right now? Like, is it that serious? Yeah. My kid took their marker out and started coloring up a pair of pants that I bought them. I could totally see myself walling out and then think about it later and be like, that wasn't worth it. Mm. Yeah. And I I think that's the power of like where we're at now, where we have an opportunity to one, break those generational curses, uh, but also, man, to really create space for our children to really flourish without, without shrinking. Right. Like I know, as a dad, like, I don't, I don't have to even raise my voice. I can just say, Hey, listen, and in the most calm way. And it's just a, it's just a small correction. And he's, and he's tuned in because the barrier of fear is not there. And so now what I, what I really do is like, even at home, like I grew up in the household, you can't leave this is in the sink. You know, you can't leave toys in the, in the living room. You leave toys in the living room. It's going in the trash. You know what I'm saying? You leave this in the street in in the sink. You might wake up at two in the morning you know, getting your ass whooped, you know what I'm saying? And like, my son doesn't have that fear of that experience. And you can see in just his personality, how he shows up. And I think it's empowering for kids to really make decisions and, and make mistakes and be able to own them that they made on their own, as opposed to they made something because they were afraid they were going to get it wrong and then mess the whole thing up. And so I just think, man, right now we had the biggest opportunity, especially as dads to really, think about parenting through a, a, a healthier, more thought evolved lens. And that's just what I try to do, um, you know, with, with my youngest son. Yeah. I feel like everything you're saying makes so much sense. And and right now I'm, I'm grappling with, you know, I, I decided I wasn't going to hit my kids, you know, the way that we got hit growing up, we got the belt or we got the, the chancleta, the, the, the slipper. Yeah. And um, I, I knew I wasn't going to do that, but, I'm also from a very loud household, you know, being loud Latinos. And we we, we, we scream when we're not screaming. And then we, <laughs> we really scream when we scream. And so right. I've noticed that, you know, I had no problem with doing that, knowing that I wasn't going to hit my kids. I felt like, you know, being loud, it's a part of our culture and they should just get used to it and, right. and they shouldn't be scared of it. But I've noticed when I scream at my daughter, like I, I, I see her jolt and be scared and almost like she's developing PTSD off of the screaming. And now I'm like, man, this is this isn't good. Like, I don't want this for her. I don't want. And, and now she's starting to say, like, uh, don't be mean to me. Don't be mean to me. But mm-hmm. it's sheltered, like almost like if I had hit her. Yeah. And so I'm trying to figure out what other ways. And like you saying, you know, like just, you know, the way you, you're talking to to your kids. And, and and I'm trying to figure out these methods too to to not be, you know, be myself, basically, because it's really natural to me to be loud. Yeah. And yeah. so when I'm angry, it's going to just even amplify more. But it's really interesting. And, and yeah, I want to work on that for myself. But, you know, the fear factor of it, it, like going back to what you're saying about the fear factor. I mean, even like even if you're not 
hitting your kids, but even if they're scared of the raised voice or scared of what the consequences are going to be, they end up doing themselves even more damage, which I'm finding. It's like, you know, my son will do some things and then we'll find out about it later. Or, you know, when we get to the root of it, it's because he was scared of what the outcome was going to be. And he made it worse for himself because of that fear of whatever, whatever that is. So it's almost like, you know, look, everyone's going to have, everyone's got to face up to, to things, right. There's going to be mistakes made and there's going to be things that we all, that, that everyone has to take accountability for, but how do we take the fear out of it so that we can teach them to just own up and, and learn from it as opposed to getting in that fear and making things worse for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think this is, this is that time to really just talk about it. Like what are these new methods we can employ that actually doesn't traumatize our kids, you know, and I, and I think about, I would have these heated debates, you know, with family members and friends about corporal punishment. Cause I don't, I don't hit my son. Um, and you know how I always brought him back to it. I was like, well, what if your spouse, when you, when you forgot to cook dinner, just like came in and slapped you with a house. Shoe? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And like, would that be acceptable? Right. It's like, no, it'd be domestic abuse. You know what I mean? And, and, and it'd be real consequence for that. And I'm like, your children are people too. They're, they're human beings, you know? Right. And, you know, I always think about how devastating it would be if I just flipped the switch and like, you know, even just like barked on him like real crazy. Or if I like, you know, like violently struck him, like he would never be the same because his brain is still forming for one. And that's another thing we don't take account for, especially with our young boys is that, you know, their brains aren't fully developed until they're 26 years old. And so a lot of things I learned while I was in prison was that most of us who were in prison all had came from backgrounds of extreme abuse, like physical violence, the, the stick, the switch, the, the backslap, you know, you didn't have any agency. And then we expect people to go out into the world and be healthy, kind human beings when that's not how they're treated at home. And so I think a lot of it, you know, I, I could just tell you quickly with my mom, how we got on our journey of healing is we had this really deep conversation because she was like, you know, I can't believe you wrote about, you know, what happened, you know, in our household and like, I'm hurt by that. And she was like, you didn't really understand it. She kept saying you didn't understand. And I said, mom, of course I didn't understand. I was, you know, eight year old kid. I was nine years old, 10 years old. Of course, I don't understand your background of trauma. I don't understand the abuse you endured. So I can only experience it through the lens of where I was at at that time. And that was a that was a game changer for her and I because she was able to really step outside of her ego. She didn't want to be like, you know, the mean mom who beat her kids. But like those were just the facts. It's not who you are today, but it's the facts of who you were then. And there were reasons that went along with it that I didn't understand as a kid So I would say like in those moments as you're transitioning to like, hey, I want to do this differently, even helping your daughter understand where that comes from and why it is lessens the harm. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, this is why why I'm so excited to be on this podcast, man, because I know y'all are helping tons of dads like figure out all the complexities of fatherhood. So you said you you said so many gems and I just want to highlight a couple real quick. I know we're kind of running on time, running up on time. What, what you just said, I think, is really important and it's critical. Right. So like in this transition where we're, we're and that's the whole purpose of this podcast is really to every day try incrementally to become better fathers, ultimately to raise the best possible human beings we can. Understanding full well that we don't own these people. These people are just here for us to guide through life 
Absolutely. set them off on their way and give them as much support as we can. But it's also a, a very important part of this is atoning for your sins, quote unquote, being accountable for the mistakes you make. And like you said, explaining them to your children and where that came from, because that understanding and I've, I've noticed that in the transition of me raising now a 15 year old through her journey, I've been able to improve in my parenting. And I constantly I'm like, I can see reasons why her behavior is the way it is in certain cases. Some of the trauma that I've personally dealt her not knowing and then being able to tell her, yo, you're doing this. And I think it comes from this. And I'm so sorry, but we're going to work through it so we can get to a better outcome. And so that healing has to happen all the time. You got to be aware and accountable all the time. Absolutely. It's one of the things that I love about my dad, who's now, you know, 75 is like, you know, my dad and I, we went on this journey of writing letters to each other uh, for 19 years. And my dad was like, look, here's where I got it wrong. And here's why I got it wrong. And, and this is what I say to all dads. One, you have to give yourself some grace because most of us had kids when we were still kids. We were still developing our own identity. Our brains were still developing. Like I was 19 when my oldest son was born. I wasn't even an adult yet. Um, and I'm not sure how old you all were when your children were born. But I look back at my parents and I'm like, they had, you know, six kids before they were 30. You know what I'm saying? And so I had to learn how to get them grace. And it's truly a journey of not just like, I, I realize now, even in parenting my youngest son, I'm also parenting myself. You know, I'm, I'm still learning like the deep, deep way of loving and nurturing myself, man. And it's just a beautiful experience at this point in my life. Mm. Hey, E, it's almost like uh, speaking about all this. I mean, it's almost like now you, you, you have the opportunity to flip the script with your daughter. And even if it, even if being loud and even if, you know, when you're angry, you're loud. It's almost like now you can, now you can show her what it's like to be happy and loud as well, so that she doesn't think that loud just means angry. Like right. turn loud into being everything, right? Because that's just part of who you are. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, for me, it's I didn't have kids at a young age. I have a two and a four year old, and I'm 47, so I started <laughs> late. <laughs> but nonetheless, I still feel like because of my father's lack of and, and not being around I feel like the only thing that I'm doing or trying or that I apply most is to to be what he wasn't mm. but I, I know that there needs to be more than that I can't just be what he wasn't I need to be more than that and and that's what I think these conversations help me with um and and learning from other fathers like yourself yeah no that's that's a great way of, of, of framing it you know because I think about my dad my dad you know helped raise a total of nine children and what I've watched him do is just grow and evolve as he, you know, navigate life because his dad was there and then he wasn't. And, you know, I think about myself now, like, you know, I don't, I know that I'm different from my dad. There's definitely some similarities. My dad is a very nurturing dad. Like he's one of the most thoughtful people I know. And I take some of those cues from him, but also I'm like reading books on parenting, you know, I'm talking to you know, the dads in my life and just like learning from my friends. And, you know, it's helped me become a better dad because I see like so many of these dope fathers who, of course, our stories don't get told. Um, but when you have access to them, it's like, oh, wow, like if you can do this thing different. Let's just try it. You know, let's see what happens. You know, like I started doing affirmations with my son when he was about 18 months. We do it every night and he's 10 years old now, man. And 
he he looks forward to that. You know, whether I'm whether he's here at home with me or whether he's with his mom, he's like, you know, dad, it's it's, it's time for affirmations, you know. And that was something that just came from like seeing all the negative narratives about black boys. You know, I wanted to affirm him before the world, mm-hmm. you know, try to demonize him, you know. And so it's just these small tweaks. And, you know, also tapping in with his mom and with my with my fiance and like really um, listening to the women's wisdom when there's things I miss. Right. Like it's still times where I'm like, I, I'm rough around the edges. Like, you know, what I'm saying I'm not <laughs> as patient. I'm not as the things and they can bring that to my attention. And instead of like inserting my ego where it's like this, it's like, let me just step back and listen a little bit, you know. But I say, give yourself some grace, man. This is a. My dad told me this a couple of years ago. He says, your children are not sent here to teach you. They're actually sent here for you to learn from them. And like that stuck with me because I've learned so much life about life from from parenting my young son that it's like, damn, like I would have never thought about life this way had I not been hands on and in, in, in raising my youngest. Yo. I feel like we could end right there, but I, I want to, I don't want, we got to get a episode, a couple more episodes. Yeah, we got to get a couple sure. more episodes with you. <laughs> yeah. you. You might be recruited for a couple more. Of these joints, so man, I got y'all bro. I'm rocking with yeah. y'all. <laughs> um, but I don't want this to be missed. Cause I think my guess is this was outside of the influence of your son and those, that letter that really transformed your path. You mentioned journaling as something you do to this day. And so, yeah. Journaling effectively just sets the intention of what you expect to accomplish, right? Absolutely. And then you, you said very clearly, you s- establish a goal so that you know that there's a some a target to hit. So whatever you set your intentions toward, you get to com- complete. That is something that's kind of I've newly discovered in my life as of recent, doing a lot of personal development. And it is almost miraculous. Actually, no, it truly is miraculous. Absolutely. How many things will you will manifest when you just do those two basic things. And so I, I, I congratulate you for doing like, I, I don't know a ton about you outside of what I read, but I know you on this like path that's going to be like tr- transformational, not just for you and your family, but for a lot of people that are, are lost and trying to find their way. So thank you for joining us. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I'll, I'll turn it back to you. Like, am I, am I spot on yeah. with what I'm saying? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So just real quick, you know, when I, when I walked out of prison, people was like, man, just get a job at a gas station go about life don't tell anybody what your you know you know what you was in prison for and i had a whole different game plan i still have my books to this day my notebooks i wrote down everything i wanted to happen with my writing i and i was very intentional about it. i'm like i want to be a new york Times bestselling author i want Oprah to read one of my books and i want to you know turn my my stuff into film and stage and you know all these different things i want to be you know a paid speaker all over the world. And like, I've executed literally everything that I wrote down all the way to the detail of like the first color of the first kind of car I wanted to actually buy myself. And I go back and look at that and it it blows my mind, but I also still do it. You know, I'm like, here's what I want to execute on next. Right. And my, my, and and it's not to like brag, but it's just to like really give some context to people about it doesn't matter how far down you fall in life. Nobody would have ever expected I'd be doing the things that I'm doing at the level that I do them at. Um, you know, I've been on an album with Nas. That came from like my first tattoo in prison was this bootleg. This say this is the wildest tattoo. It say ill and Matic over here. It's a <laughs> random, random dog that looks like a bear. Um, because that's what that's when I first heard Illmatic, One Love, I literally felt like Nas was writing that letter to me. 
And I'm like, man, I gotta, I gotta meet this brother one day and I gotta tell him what that, how that letter pulled me out of a dark moment in my life. I was able to do that years later. He invited me to write on, you know, King's disease too. Um, and so you can, I believe you can manifest whatever you want to manifest I believe that. in life, but you gotta be intentional about it. You know, I call it like my GPS system, right? I write it down and I know whether I'm moving in that direction or I'm moving in a different direction. Of course you got to execute, you know, you got to show up over and over again. You know, I'm with a company right now I've been with for two years, you know, again, I'm like one of the, you know, the only tech execs that come from my experience at a company with, you know, over a $7 billion valuation that I'm able to help grow. I'm help growing our sales team. And so I'm able to speak to people, things that I wrote down. So big advocate of, of journaling, big advocate of meditation and accountability partners. I think it's so important to have people in your life that you can go to and say, man, am I getting this right? Or am I on some bullshit? And that they're going to give you the real, you know what I'm saying? And, and within our culture right now, I just feel like there's so many guys that celebrate like prison and penitentiary. And I can tell you that shit is trash. Like, right. you know, my, my, my best day in prison would never compare to my worst day out here. And, you know, the idea for me that changed my life was I literally had this guy come to my cell and try to strip search me. And I was like, no, I'm not doing no strip search. And this guy was a babbling idiot. And I said to myself, I would never be in a position where somebody who's intellectually inferior to me can control my life. And because that's what prison is. You got these backwood, you know, people who aren't that smart controlling your life. And, and I'm like, I can never subject myself to that again. So. I write it down, I meditate on it, and then I execute at a super high level. Man. Yo, that's Shaka Sangor. Thank you for joining us. Check out his book, the new one, Letters to the Sons of Society, A Father's Invitation to Love, Honesty, and Freedom. If you've read the book, go on Amazon and review it because I know it helps a ton. Uh, and go check And go check out his other works too. I mean, he got another book and I know you've been featured on a whole bunch of stuff as well. So... Thank you, Shaka. We really appreciate it, man. Yeah, I'm going to go grab those books right yeah. now. Same. Thank y'all so much for having me, man. Appreciate y'all. We'll have nah, you back for you. sure, man. Yeah, we definitely need you right. back, please. Yeah. For sure. Hit me up anytime, bro. Thank sure. you for your time, man. All right, man. Love y'all, brothers. Appreciate y'all. Right. Have a great day. Yeah. Yo, be a father. If not, why bother, son? A boy can make him, but a man can raise one. Be a father to your child. 